Welcome back to the Current State of Music podcast. My name's Chris Cracknell. I am a audio mix engineer based out of my own studio, Goldtone Studio in Brighton in the UK. I also host a weekly radio show on 1BTN. I've been a DJ for 25 years. And I also produce and remix under the name Hollows. This is the podcast that's trying to find out what's going on in music for various people. Each of my subjects is chosen for a certain amount of longevity in the game. It's kind of no point talking to someone who's sort of only been around a few years because I'm trying to get some kind of depth and also kind of I want to speak about their stories to find out the... Draw out some comparisons with my own journey and my the own the way I feel about things like imposter syndrome or self confidence and all those sort of things that everyone has but don't necessarily always get spoken about. So we try and we take about an hour to sit down and have to kind of talk through all these things to follow a bit of a journey through their career and to where music is right now but within that we try and sort of converse freely to try and dig deeper and find some of these sort of little things that hopefully will find its way into your mind into your thoughts when you're sitting alone trying to maybe you're thinking of changing career maybe you're considering a career in music Maybe you just got a few projects and you don't know where to start with them and you just need a little bit of self-belief or you just need a bit of inspiration to kind of kick them off. And certainly this week, the subject of this episode, Laura Vane, who has been a singer and top-line writer for a long time, her story's really funny and really interesting and she's such a warm character. I don't really know her very well. I've met her once before. And uh, she agreed to come over to my studio and sit down with me. And she was really open and honest about the challenges, about being a mother and trying to balance that with trying to work as a musician. And there's certainly a lot of comparisons I could find about there. I, I have a family and I try and balance that against my career. And so that's just one of the things like we talked about. But hopefully you're going to enjoy it. A very interesting hour in the company of Miss Laura Vane. Hello, Laura. Hi. And what do you do? I'm a singer and a mother. Singer and a mother. Mm. How does that balance out? Pretty awkwardly, a lot of the time, I'll be honest. (laughs) Do you spend a lot of money on babysitters? Oh, I have done. I anticipate spending a lot more. Yeah, I mean that's that's the just the way it the cookie crumbles, I guess. Yeah. So, um, as I like to do on the podcast, let's go back to early memories. Way back. Probably not that far back, is it? Mm. Surely. It's a yeah. It is quite <laughs> far back, actually. Yeah, early memories. <clears throat> is there any kind of point? Is there anything you remember where you just, like, music all of a sudden became a thing in your life? No. There was never a definitive moment that I, right. I thought that because my parents are musicians. Oh. So it, from what, you know, looking back, I think, as a kid, I just thought, oh, yeah, my mum was the singer in my dad's 10-piece band. You know, that's what I'm going to do. That's quite natural. Yeah. Didn't think anything of it. My, You know, my house where I grew up with my two older brothers just stacked with like PA equipment and musical instruments and yeah. you know it was it was a, just a normal thing in our house so a very musical house really musical family yeah was there lots of um, like instruments at home and was people playing them all the time did it like did it come <laughs> into your house I can imagine Christmas <laughs> oh yeah I mean this is yeah it wasn't like that I mean it's sort of like this funny sort of Walt Disney romanticised image of what a musical family is and the nuts of it is there's a shed load of like guitar strings and leads everywhere um, yeah. and there's always a piano somewhere 
and maybe a couple of guitars. My dad used to teach piano lessons to right. kids local, locally and they used to come to our house for their lessons and also he used to go out and do um, recitals in, in local schools with oh, his yeah. guitar. Yeah. So he was very much the sort of like the working musician in town to know yeah, yeah. if your kids needed to pick up an instrument. But I mean, in terms of like, where we all sat around jamming and clapping and singing about how we're music lovers, no. No, that's, uh, that, that's just, no, it's not that at all. How disappointing. That's, that's hilarious that people might think that when you say you come from a musical family that, yeah, the kids come home, they put their satchels and their backpacks down from school and they just sit and jam with their mum and dad. For a bit. Yeah, you know, like dad picks up the guitar and just starts strumming and then one of the kids walks in and starts... You know, just starts freestyling some sort of song to it, and all of a sudden you've got a full production, and there's dancers coming in from outside. <laughs> yeah, mum's got a smoke machine pushing the smoke through the kitchen into the hallway. Can can happening up the stairs. Yeah, no, it's nothing like that. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's. I mean, when it's when it's your job, and it was my dad's job always. Yeah. Uh, especially when I was growing up, it always had been up until that point. He's sort of got into IT a bit later, but. Um, yeah. There's no, there's no big deal made about it. It's like it's just, it's just what it is. Yeah. Uh, we did whatever we did with it. I mean, there was no, there was no, you must work in music. In fact, there was very much like, do you understand how hard it is in music? Yeah. And their angle was, you know, they they were a working band that were, you know, in the height of the season at Pontins in Christchurch, they were playing like six nights a week. Wow. Ten piece band playing up to two, maybe a bit more hours. Yeah. A night. So. Our feeling about music, I think, I could speak for my brothers growing up, is that our experience was largely our parents providing the music for other people's entertainment. Yeah. Not artistically driven. Right. And that puts a different swing on it. It's a it's a definite job. Yeah. Yeah. We had all sorts of, you know, interactions with cabaret artists and uh, a couple of them came to our house because they needed to run through some things with my dad. My yeah. dad scoring out all the parts by hand for all the horn players and everyone in the band. I think we've always seen the graft in the work. Yeah. Uh, and it's definitely not been sort of just sat, sat around or um, or even can-canning up the stairs, coming up with musical things. Yeah. Yeah. So was there a point when sort of music became your own, though, where you sort of started listening to things that maybe yeah. other people in your house weren't listening to? Did you have a, like a... Yeah, there was there was a couple of times that I can articulate, I guess. My dad stopped to get some petrol at one point um, when I was living with him, so up to the age of 11, 12 or something. And he picked up this cassette tape. And that was knocking around and it had loads of Motown on it. And that wasn't really what my parents listened to. I was surprised that it was around, kind of whipped it, yeah. put it in my room, listened to it in there. Um, and also he picked up a disco tape. And at the time, yeah, it didn't resemble anything that I'd really seen in the house. Yeah. Uh, it definitely wasn't Shack Attack, which was what was being played a lot of the time. Um, Man, that's a, that is, I've not heard that Shack band's Attack. name for a, an awful long time. Oh, yeah. Routinely, Saturday mornings, Dad storming in all of our bedrooms, pulling open the curtains. Who's seen my Shack Attack tape? <laughs> no one. We haven't seen it. We don't want it. Um, the only dad in the world <laughs> to have coined that phrase. I think I think he still listens. I think he still shack attacks. Does a little shack attack every every. <laughs> Do you, Dad? <laughs> you listening? Uh, and the other time I think was um, when I was sort of a teenager, and then I was living with my mother, and I started to be in control of some money, working at a bakery, buy your own music. You know, you got your own cash coming in. Yeah. And um, I really, really got as deep as I could into Jamiroquai and the brand new heavies. Oof. Incidentally, who Flevins and I are supporting this weekend. So I'm, I'm mad pumped about that because yeah. on uh, Friday night down in Southampton we'll be supporting the brand new heavies. Um, yeah, so that was the time when when you got the money in your hands to make the choices, yeah. you know, the liberation. Yeah, yeah. I instantly s- seen myself like propelled into a lot of, I guess, um, soul music, black music, jazz, acid jazz movement. Yeah. And that's where I really started thinking, yeah, this is... Where were you at this point? Where were you living? Southampton, in a place called Shirley, which is, well, I quite like Shirley. Yeah. Some people don't like it, but, you know, I feel very fond towards Shirley. And um, how was Shirley in terms of wanting to listen to that sort of music? Were you kind of on your own or was there like lots of everyone listening to I was on my own. Yeah. And I liked that. 
you know, if I thought loads of other people were listening to Jamiroquai, I would have found something else to do. No, the fact is, nobody was. <laughs> it was all, uh, you know, all of my mates, my best mates, not even into music full stop at the time. So, I mean, we weren't falling out about anything. Yeah. Um, but loads of take that fans within my peers group. And, you know, none of them had a musical family that they came from necessarily. Yeah. So... I felt that they were pulling much more towards pop, but yeah. because I felt my family already had sorted out a lot of stuff for me, yeah, I, I really went into acid jazz because I, I felt, yeah, I felt a real, a real natural progression into that from everything else. But no, I used to wear my little acid jazz badge on my school, you know, nice. top and stuff. And there was probably like one other person. I think my name was Laura too. That was really into acid jazz. So how did how were you getting hold of that at the time then? Was there like a local shop that was sort yeah. of had a good selection or HMV? Uh, and there was also a shop called Foreplay in Southampton. It mostly did like DVDs and stuff. Right. Uh, DVDs? Well, it would have been videos. Uh, surely videos. Oh, yeah, it was videos. <laughs> they sold a selection of CDs. Yeah. Cassettes were on their way out. I had, I think most of yeah, definitely the first Jamiroquai album on cassette. Yeah. And I think by the time their second album came out, it was moving on to CDs. Wow. Yeah. And um, were you, did you do any sort of studying music at school? <clears throat> no. Fair enough. Yeah. It's surprising. I mean, Most people I talked to didn't do anything at school. Nothing. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> possibly, yeah. Uh, but like no sort of formal musical education from school. And I think that's quite a fascinating... I was really naffed off. I went to choir once at secondary. I was at secondary, a mixed secondary called Bitten Park um, for the first sort of year and a half. And I remember going for choir there. And at that point, let's... I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this for any reason, but... Let, Let's remember that I've already been in a functioning musical family for such a long time. That yeah. These are people that are just finding out whether they can sing or not. Yeah. I've known since I was about five or six that I can hold a note. And, you know, at like eight or nine years old, I would sing along to Stop by Sam Brown, getting a real thrill out of the fact that I can copy her. Yeah. So when it comes to taking up choir at secondary, I don't know what the hell they're all doing. They were singing the song, John Brown's Boots, do you know it? Yeah. In the town there was this... And then was John Brown's boot About a butcher. Right. And they were learning to clap along with the beat and sing melodic, yeah, like sentences, right, reading a sheet. Yeah. And I was already into Jamiroquai, and I was thinking, I don't know what everyone else is doing in here, but this is not m what I'm going to do. No. It was so abstract. Yeah. It was not relevant, and I never wanted to learn anything about singing in that environment. From that point, it put me right off. Yeah. But also knowing that there's a piano in the house and guitars and endless you know, knowledge, also meant that it was too easy. Yeah, it was so, just there for you. And I think my dad got me up to grade two piano before we realised I just could not be asked him. Mm. Oh, all I wanted to do was sing. Yeah. We didn't We didn't do anything formally with my singing. We actually pushed my dancing for years. My dad put, and my mum, I had four to five dance classes a week that I was attending. Right. Up to the age of 12 or 13. Because I was going to say, like, were, you know, obviously you could sing was that in any way sort of how did that kind of manifest itself if it wasn't in the choir where did you did you get an opportunity to sing anywhere or to do it live or well yeah or just you know to to be sort of doing it no i don't really think so i didn't want to go in for drama parts where you might get the opportunity i entered a few competitions as a kid right you know on holiday camps and stuff yeah and i won at least one I can remember. Uh, it's funny. It wasn't really until I was 18 that I was out with a bunch of mates and they didn't really know that I fancied myself as a bit of a singer, yeah. let alone could I actually do it. And uh, there was a karaoke on. I said, well, I'm not going to get up and sing unless you'll put a quid on the table. Uh, and they all did. And I got like a tenner plus a keg of beer or something, <laughs> winning with uh, Midnight of the Oasis. Uh, and that was sort of like the first point at which I kind of revealed, I guess, to people yeah. that I knew I could do this. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of like nurturing that and getting out there and doing it, I don't really think there there was things that I took up or, di or did regularly. Yeah. Just happened. 
but obviously something must have then happened that you then started singing more and more. What was the what was like? What happened then? Well, everyone was going off to university. We finished college, uh, and at that point, I think there was like two years when I was at secondary that I decided I didn't want to be a singer. I've always I've always known. Right. Looking at my mum doing it, it seemed really obvious, right? Uh, I decided, yeah, I want to work for sick dogs. <laughs> work with sick dogs. Sick dogs. Yeah, like puppies. Poor sick puppies. Hope, you know, sick when you're dogs, at that age, right, yeah, 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 when you're. You know, I did does, does every and this is going to sound this might sound awful. Does every girl go through a point of wanting to sort of be a vet or Help the something? Animals. Yeah. I think inevitably. Yeah, I don't even know if it's just girls. Maybe it is just girls. I don't know. But there's de- there was definitely a, a movement. Yeah. And it's sort of like early, early teens, maybe approaching your early teens, where you get a bit, oh, but look at the little animal. <laughs> He's sick. He needs help. Um, My daughter's five and she does that. <laughs> it's, it's, I guess it. I guess it comes somewhere <laughs> through the same path as like seeing mums with babies and yeah, that whole sort of looking after I guess the, so, yeah. the vulnerable, let me be the one thing. And, you know, women... And therefore, girls have a natural affinity with that because of the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, got over that. Decided it's back to being a singer. All of my friends after college went to university. And I'd definitely decided by the time I'd finished my A-levels that I was going to get a full-time job and just gig my arse off. Right. Yeah. I knew a few musicians. My brother introduced me to a piano player, a really talented keys player called Stephen McCleary. Um... And we just started everywhere we could, on Sundays, predominantly. Why Sundays? Because uh, we were doing a sort of jazz soul thing. And actually, it seemed that if you sold a jazz, a laid-back, jazzy, solely set as a duo to anyone, they would go, yeah? So that's what we pushed the most, and that's how I got started. So from the time that I was 18 and left college with my A-levels, I just went right into it. Yeah. I burnt the candle at both ends full at least three years was always ill right doing a full-time job and then gigging as much yeah, as yeah. I could um, but I kind of I, I, I gathered the the momentum and the and the nuts to do it you know I, I wanted to do it yeah and I knew that when the college finished I was not going to university right you knew that already yeah yeah I was not going to university I just I didn't see the, the merit in it not for what I wanted out of life yeah but looking at it Obviously, your parents were like gigging musicians, mm. but not, as you said, like not the sort of they're creating their own art sort of thing. They were sort of doing other people's music. Mm. Did you have a conscious vision to think I want to do my own thing, or were you thinking as a singer, I will just do other people's music? Was there ever yeah. like did you th- the latter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's all I'd seen my parents do. Yeah, I've never really thought about creative music. Not until it had been a couple of years <coughs> performing with Steve on Sundays and um, a couple of guys who knew a mu- we had a mutual friend. They came in and they said, you know, you're really good. Do you write your own stuff? And I went, no. They said, you should. Right. Why don't you come along to a rehearsal that we're doing? And we always do it Monday nights. Uh, and I was 18. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And I had never... Until that point, not about really, not seriously. Yeah. Writing my own songs and singing and being an artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what happened is over the next sort of like 18 months to two years, we wrote an album together with the, with this band. We called ourselves Cubica uh, and, and recorded it, yeah. What sort that, of music? Oh, I don't really know how to that describe it. Go on. <laughs> but it's sort of, it's like quirky electronic pop. Right. Um, it definitely has a lo-fi feel about it. I don't know if that's what they were going for. And I was really sort of like inexperienced in terms of like production and and all of that. I mean, not only do I not play an instrument, I still don't. So I, I, yeah, I didn't really feel like I had a view on what they were all doing right. so much. Um, but I, I didn't really know how the whole process worked. So yeah. what we got at the end of it, it just sounded like something I'd never heard before. Right. Um, and I listened to it not too long ago, about a year ago at my mum's. Funny, I found it. <clears throat> but that was the, that was the first time that I actually had the idea because they put it to me. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, I was I was writing songs all the time. So how 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 did you put your? Because I think a lot of people is I have this like I'm not particularly strong at any instrument, and I always think that the people that There's are a make... lot of instruments in your by the way. <laughs> I know. I know. 
I can manage to press buttons. I've, wor I've worked out. It? I've worked out pressing buttons. <laughs> but I've. I worry that because I'm not, you know, I don't mm. know what chord goes with that after that and all that sort of thing. I have to do it by ear. Yeah. And I always worry that that makes me not, or whatever I make won't be as good as someone that just has it flowing through. Do you them. know what? If I could have quid for every time I have this conversation with people that really? are successful, professional, proficient, yeah, you know, believable, <laughs> absolutely credible people. Uh, I'm, I'm having it with them frequently because I think when you're when you are self-taught, when you've learned something yourself, you don't get that certificate and that stamp of sort of validation. Yeah. And I think that is hard. And I, you know, even in the Vibertones, I've got a Dutch band that I've been releasing and recording with for sort of yeah, ten years now. We had a we had a situation in a, in a recording session where me and the and the keys player Frank Montes is a very good friend of mine, funny guy. He's like playing a minor chord and I'm singing a major over the top, and he's telling me that it's wrong. And I'm saying, well, doesn't sound wrong to me. Yeah. I mean, if it sounded wrong, I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And it raises that question, doesn't it, about yeah, if you're self-taught, does it make a difference or? Yeah. Actually, what makes a difference is how you feel about it. Yeah, I and guess And that so. probably is the bottom line. I guess it's the self-doubt, finding a reason for some self-doubt and you think, oh, mm. okay, well, I can hang it on that. Yeah, I mean, if you need to doubt yourself and you need to find something, then sure knock yourself out <laughs> but I think really be you kind know. yeah I mean but, well, <laughs> I'm opening up here <laughs> <laughs> don't go for that that's what I'm trying to say don't don't go for that you know if you if you know you can do something yeah if it sounds good don't pull it apart and say well but should I be able to know how to do this in fact as if it's working it's working so how's your how are you how did you approach writing songs at that point then were you just kind of singing melodies and things and then With working it out band. yeah uh, so because we were in rehearsals it was i'd spend a lot of time listening to them coming up with music and then sort of trying to kind of sit and take from it in the corner of the room and come up with something melodically the words i found at that point were quite difficult to feel happy with in the moment that I wrote it so I'm right. trying to steer away from writing the words in that moment and fill in the blanks so if I write a melody line sort of scatter it a little bit on the mic in the rehearsal yeah <clears throat> but that process sort of changed a lot as I started working with producers rather than musicians so right yeah and, and now it's got to a point where mostly I'd say about yeah 80% of the work I do maybe more is people sending me a beat sending me a track which is more or less done maybe needs a bit more Yep. And I worked that and then send my stuff over to them afterwards. Okay. Very remote. Well, we'll get on to that because yeah. that's a kind of, that's very much where music is now. That's how a lot mm. of people make it. But let's go back to then, okay, so after, what were they called? Sorry, I forgot. Cubica. Cubica. Mm. What happened after that? <clears throat> um, at some point, the, the band didn't carry on. Uh, and I was working, I mean, I had a string of full-time jobs to be able to pay my rent. Yeah. It's still in Southampton. It's still, still in Southampton, in yeah. No, not in Shirley. Now I was in Portsmouth, I think. <laughs> Actually, I can't really remember. But I moved out of my mum's house at the same time right. that I took on my first full-time job. And the, yeah. the, the feeling behind it was, as I was getting to the end of college, is that I can't expect my mum to, you know, it was just me and her living together, to go to bed without putting the chain across the door because I'm coming in at two or three yeah, in the morning yeah. from gigs. So out of respect to my mum, I made the decision to move out. And that meant I had to get my full-time job to yeah. pay for my rent. But I de needed to gig because that was the whole point of moving out. So yeah. you know, the plan was hard and it was full on, but it happened. That's quite a mature <laughs> outlook, isn't it? Because a lot of people be like, well, if I'm pursuing something that might not going to be paying me much money to start with, I'll stay where it's cheaper. And do you know what I mean? To actually yeah. kind of put your put other people first in front of your big plan and to make your own plan harder. She didn't see it like she just what she she didn't actually ask me outright until like about a year or two later like why did you move out? Yeah. And that's when I said because I thought it was really rude. And she I mean I don't think I don't remember a time when she actually said to me oh no I would have let you come in at any time and not put the chain on. That's not what I wanted for her. I knew. I know my mum so well how much uh, how much she got from just knowing the door was shut. 
Yeah. Nothing was coming in here anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't have mobiles at that time, so the phone was not going to ring. It, all this stuff was just, it was just a no-brainer for her. Yeah. I'm not going to mess that up for her. And I, you know, I have a lot of respect for my mum. Um, so, yeah, that was what I just decided to do, is get out and start gigging. So after Cubica, I started another full-time job at B&Q head office uh, in the accounts department. Um, <laughs> how, how did you get on there? Oh, it was awful. I think it was my first day of work. I fell asleep at my desk, which was just <laughs> so awful. I had this uh, boss called Jane Chapman. Um, shout out to Jane Chapman. Shout out to you, Jane Chapman. <laughs> and bless her, I'm sure she thought, fucking hell, what have we got here? And uh, I was never, I've never been a wild one at all. Been a very sensible musician my entire life. But there was a, pe a period of time between the age of sort of like 19 and 21, I was working, I was working there. And it was when I got on it quite a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> I'd been gigging for a while then and I was well versed in the sort of lock-ins. Yeah. And drinking Sambuca a lot, puking up in carrier bags on my way to work. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> in, in the <laughs> <laughs> I was terrible. She sent me home, Jane Chapman. Thank you, Jane Chapman, for sending me home. I remember she sort of said to me, right, you're not well enough to come into work today, are you? And I stank of Sambuco. I'd been asleep for three hours. I was still very pissed. I just burped and sort of said, no, <laughs> I'm not well enough to be here. I really ought to go home. She, she probably put up with quite a bit more than I remember. Yeah. Anyway, there was a very key moment where she said to me, Believe you, Miss One of you know, she obviously hooked me out from behind my desk, took me down to the canteen. Believe you, me, Laura, when I was your age, I was 21, I wanted to be a pop star too. And I um, honestly couldn't believe it <laughs> she said this to me. Uh, I sort of was shocked, amazed, and just dumbfounded, and all the, all the other sort of like tickly sensations. And she said it to me, um, especially because at that time. A friend of ours, me and my brother had formed a band called Bangstick. Right. And uh, we had a drummer called uh, Gary, <coughs> who was working with the Artful Dodger in Southampton, who was very right. hot at the time. And Mark Hill, which is one half of the Artful Dodger, had a studio down by the water in Southampton. And, uh, and our drummer, Gary, had put one of our CDs down on his desk. Right. And he picked it up and he was raving about it. And he actually... Lesson Mark Hill managed to get us a record deal with Universal Island. He oh, was right. running a subsidiary label. And uh, <laughs> at that point, she said this to me. It was about two months before I, well, I really quite badly, but felt vindicated by shoving my fingers up at her and saying, I'm fucking off to do my record contract. Do yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I was 21, all my mates had just graduated. Yeah. Um, see how typically juvenile the whole situation is now with me and my boss at being uh, uh, but I was off there I was off to be a pop star bye fuck you excellent excellent that was what I wanted so they were all graduating and getting all their nice certificates and stuff and there was me with my record contract and everything felt delightfully on course yeah and worth all the hard work so yeah that was what came after that and the, ba the band Bangstick we recorded two albums in the end neither of them got released and what does that do to you when you make this music and it doesn't go anywhere well, I think first time round, I think you're really miffed. Like, really put out. Uh, and then as you get older and you work more and more in the industry, you realise that's actually pretty normal. Yeah. And the quicker you get your head around that, the better you'll feel about doing what you do in music, I think. And you need to get over that. You need to stop being so precious otherwise. Yeah, I think I think music can be an unrequited love. Yeah. I'm sort of getting from you that you would take that as a learning experience, not a crushing blow. Oh, at the time it was a crushing blow. Yeah. I've had some crushing blows. Have you? But you know, I feel like now I can look at stuff. I mean, yeah. I think my outlook is generally that you learn from everything. I think, I think do, I'm not doing what I do today and be in the situation I am today from, if it wasn't for everything else that came before. Yeah. And I get that. I wouldn't take anything back, not really. So what happened after Bang Stick then? <laughs> God, hell, I can remember all of this stuff. I mean, you don't have to go into <clears throat> minute detail. Okay. But obviously, okay. The, so I'm looking at like in your career 20s. arc, like yeah, you know. Yeah. You... In my twenties, 
I think, uh, well, I, I signed this major record contract. I signed with a major publishing company, so Warner Chapel. I started getting involved a lot more in writing. Um, and then some high profile sort of session backing vocal work, which I was doing with the streets. Um, so that wasn't so creative because I was just told what to do. Yeah. Which, excellent fun, really great fun. Uh, and, and yeah, did a great lot of touring with them and other artists that were on the beats. And I also landed a, a job with Niles Barkley. So I was singing backing vocals with them when they first came to the UK when Crazy was at number one. And I did Top of the Pops with them and kind of got their, um, their world tour contract right. and then it was taken off of us no <laughs> yeah i know and i i was working at southampton city art gallery right in the accounts department for sort of like part-time work i think it was um and i ditched that job to be able to go on tour with niles barkley and it, for me that was i think that was one of the moments where i thought no here we go uh, uh and then it all fell to shit so i kind of um that was that that was the point at which i fit i think in my head i quit everything right that i had and i know and i include my boyfriend at the time and the rent on my flat anything that i was doing with myself i stopped it all i moved into my dad's for the whole of the summer and i saved and then i moved to brighton right uh so when i arrived in brighton i still was continuing to work with the streets and then i started doing some top line writing i started i started a project with mj cole called nice. the big tiny which was wicked which also never saw release and I still have some of these tunes which I'm working with now because uh, I don't really want to let them go no so for me that my 20s was quite a prolific period of doing some great high profile touring and festivals and TV stuff yeah uh, and then also working creatively with producers that I didn't ever anticipate that I'd really be working with also um it seems to me now that I can look at it all and there's a, there's some key influences when I was in that very busy period of just eating you know acid jazz up like it was my you know that was my diet for like three years yeah key people in the scene at that point and I've now managed to work with quite a few of them which is I recognize now a massive for me whether I'm earning loads of money or not loads of money out of music I feel that and that's I feel really pleased with myself about that um so towards the end of my 20s let's say yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get more and more involved in things that I am the driving force of. Right. And I'm I'm a featured artist on already a, a, quite a number of albums, one involving uh, my, my middle brother's sort of music. He was doing uh, something called The Part-Time Heroes, which is sort of a new jazz out on Wawa Records. So I was involved in that and a lot of dance music. Right. And then this Dutch band, at the point that I moved to Brighton, they got, well, these two Dutch DJs called um, Phil and Ton got in touch and said, do you want to work together? First time they did it, I said no. It was just, it, my head was up my ass and I was just not able to give anything. I was right. at that point when I was knuckling down to trying to get away from Southampton. Yeah. Um, but then they got back in touch and we then went on to form the Vipertones. Right. And we've now, well, we, we're sort of wrapping up a bunch of tunes that looks like our fourth album now. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah it's, it seems to me that over the past sort of eight to ten years it's been largely me featuring on a lot of music yeah uh, plus Laura Vane and the Vibertones which is what the project name is and it's that's where I'm at now really is that I've I've got to this point where I'm, I front up the the Flemings show I'm the, I'm the singer for that project when we take it live and I do a lot of writing. do you help write yeah. With Nigel. <clears throat> Nigel. Nigel Evans, Flevins. Yeah. Yeah, so, he, I mean, he'll, he, we do that process that I mentioned earlier, which is he'll pro probably send me a beat that's mostly finished, or yeah. at, that, at that point he's happy with it to give it to me. Yeah. And that's how we've been doing it with the vibe tones in, in Holland, too, because, I mean, obviously it's not easy to get in the studio and just feel the moment. No. So, um, yeah, it's been really busy the past couple of years especially but I mean I've had two kids in the, in the past eight years too so it's been a funny old mixture of uh, you know applying your foot on the gas just a little bit a little bit and then taking it right off again yeah and being huge for you know six months and then being totally under the thumb yeah 
<laughs> It'd be good to talk about that actually, because you are the first woman that I've no got way. on the podcast. I know, and it's <clears throat> not for any other reason than you hate women. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, it isn't that. No, it's not. No, that. no, no. It's just, it's just through. It's. I don't chase people down so much. Uh, if I meet them, and then sort of when I'm working, and it goes, yeah. okay, right. Oh, there's that person. Mm. But yeah, it's that thing of being a parent because I struggle with what I'm trying to do. Like I'm obviously a mix engineer. I'm trying to create this new career for myself, but then I have to balance going out, meeting people, mm. doing the work, you know, and trying to do all this stuff with having three children, which takes an awful lot of time and energy. Yeah. And I'd like to sort of hear kind of how you balance the whole situation out yeah I mean it's a really tricky balancing act and I think even more so over the past sort of few days to a week I've been really thinking about it a lot Um, because I think I've applied myself to music for such a long time now we're talking like over 20 years pause that uh, sec yeah alright dude pause space hey it's lovely uh, safe trip back. Thanks, man. See you soon. Yeah. Take care. Say thanks to these well. I'm fucking pissed off. Enjoy. Enjoy. Bye. 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 Bye
those days are done. And if you feel that you need to operate like that, then you're going to have to work on other musical projects because I just simply cannot be under the cosh yeah. like that. Now that I'm going to be having two children because my time and my attention, and rightfully so, should go into the tiny humans that I'm bringing up. Yeah. So I've made it quite clear that I can't work the same way that I used to work. My willingness and my passion is still there. Yeah. But it's tempered hourly with what <laughs> is actually going on underneath my nose. Yeah. Um, and regrettably, the industry still it still has a lot of men in it that don't quite understand. A lot of business women who don't quite understand. Right. I think there still is, uh, in, in, you know, music is dominated mostly by men, it still seems. Yeah. It's a bit of a novelty to find a female producer. Right. Or someone working in music business that isn't a man. Yeah. So therefore, I find it quite, I have come across, even in the past week, having conversations with somebody, like, why can't I make sound check? Well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't take the gig if I can't make the sound check. You know, it's quite, and it's a hard line, and I understand his reasons for delivering me that line. Yeah. But it also, it, it just pricks my ears up again to, to see that the industry that I work in is really not, it's not all too forgiving. And that's, and that's the way it's always been, I guess. Yeah, yeah. My friend Katie... She's an amazing vocalist and she works with a lot of top names like Kylie, Adele, uh, you know. Ollie Mers is somebody that she cited in an interview recently for being the most understanding. Right. And was, you know, he's totally adaptable. Like she would say, I've just had a baby. She, her baby's now one. Right. And she doesn't make a big deal out of it, but she recognises that everyone's got to give and take a little bit more some flexibility at the early point, yeah. especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was brilliant about it. And she's well. made a real point of saying to people, Ollie Mers was amazing. So big up you, Ollie Mers. Um, it's hard. I'm looking at my time now and I'm thinking, how can I actually contribute to my, what I've already grown my Laura Vain empire of a career, yeah. however big or small it's perceived to be? What's my time best used for? There's too much heartache gigging loads. I yeah. love it, it's my playground, that's what I want to do all the time, yeah, yeah. but it's, um, it's too much heartache right now. And not enough support facilitation there to yeah. make it come off yeah, yeah. as a single mum. It's tough, but I think the time I have got is when they're in bed asleep, and I've got a laptop and a mic, and you keep writing, you keep writing, you keep releasing. And people, if you get the opportunity to come and see me live, take it, because there'll be few and far between. Um, but that, I think that's what I'm dealing with for the next couple of years. Yeah. I've got some big plans for 2021, but it is mostly around releasing new music and yeah. not about being available to be seen gigging. Um, until until the until the whole pattern of life, normal not you know, normal life is lifted somewhat and the kids are a bit older, I don't really see how yeah. I can manage it as well as I wished. So we just sort of touched on sort of a bit about sort of the title of the podcast, The Current State of Music, from a woman's perspective of mm. the business and how still male-dominated it is. What are your sort of other views about where music is right now? You've obviously lived, <coughs> you've, you've lived and released through the yeah. sort of the dark years where <laughs> the arse fell out of it and yeah. what's going on now? Oh, I remember how... It Everyone was losing their bloody heads when it was all about suddenly about streaming and downloads. And yeah, I mean, I, that was the point at which I think I was just signed to Ireland and it was really rocky for the whole industry. Uh, my feeling now is that the emphasis is very different. I, th I think uh, how I feel about myself as an artist is I'm somebody that, yeah, I feel stuff, I write about it and I'm a good singer and I go and perform to people who want to look me in the eye. Yeah. You know, let's have a conversation. It's all very touchy-feely, very tangible, very real. Yeah. But the industry is now uh, in, in such a different place from how I felt about music when I grew up. It's more like I've, I've signed up to AWOL's newsletter, uh, which is um, like um, music services from Cobalt. Basically, I'm still to get my head around exactly how they operate. But I'm looking into a lot of platforms that uh, musicians are using to release music right. uh, themselves rather than going to labels. And the more I'm getting into these sort of like discussions and forums and newsletters and stuff, I realise just how much the music is about 
how you make the connection and not hardly as much about the music as I thought. Right. I mean, I knew there was that element, yeah. but just how much it's about social media, how you use social media, how different you need to, you know, you need to come up with a different idea to reach your fans. Like, I think it was two weeks ago, I saw some article on the news about being able to go and see an Elton John concert in, in the Netherlands and you can do your own mix on this sort of lanyard you've got around your neck what? with a little thing where you can pull up just his voice or just the orchestra, albeit five buttons for a bloody massive band. <laughs> yeah. And they've bounced it into these categories. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it, you know, and someone just released something last week where um, you, you play their new single and you get, to, you get to play pinball at the same time in front. It's like a transparent lap overlap on top of their music video where the pinball game, right. game machine is on the front, really, I guess, and you see the music video in the background. So yeah. it's... It's kind of a byproduct of you playing the game, or the game's a byproduct of you liking the music video, yeah. or the single, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's what we're dealing with these days. Do you think that's just trying to find ways to get people engaged because music has maybe become a bit more of a commodity, just to be used and thrown away, yeah, rather it's not than enough. yeah, no, not it's enough to hold people's attention anymore. No, but I, I said this to my mum the other day, and she said to me. <laughs> It never was though, really. Was it? I mean, maybe people used to sit around and put like the records on in the seventies and sit and listen to an album together. Yeah. But you know, certainly in your lifetime, you always put music on when you were doing things around the house. And yeah, she and reminded well. me, brought right back to fundamentally what we're talking about, which is people listening to music but doing something else. Yeah, I yeah. think I've actually done that my entire life, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still do it now yeah. while I'm driving, whatever it is, <laughs> while I'm on on the treadmill, you know. Um, even if it's beats that I'm working to, I'm still ingesting my music as a, a sideline of something yeah, else. Like that I'm a doing. secondary thing. Yeah, or, but, or, or maybe that's the primary, and I'm doing something else secondary. Whatever yeah. it is. Do you think because it just maybe occupies two different areas in your brain, so you can do something like motor functions, but you need something to kind of say another part. Block of your... out the grunts of the other people in the gym, and, and there's yeah. the morbid depression. Of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to do an impression of the grunt. That's a good one. Yeah, the sound of dogs passing out under heavy weights in the gym. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's. I think I recognise that the industry is. Uh, yeah, for somebody of my of of my age, I think that has experienced the industry before, it all yeah. became so digital. It's a it's a bit more. It's harder work. So if you if you grew up in the nineties, even, I think already you get your head around. Um, how you interact with social through social media. I mean, I'm not going to make it sound like I'm like some old fuddy-duddy who doesn't know how to use yeah. social platforms. Of course I do. But it's the importance and the, and how versatile and how different, how well you can use them. That's that's the bit that I've, I was, I've truly been astounded. Yeah. You know, like little interviews with example. And he says things like, yeah, I mean, I put up my single and I'll get, yeah, great, like 6,000 people going, how, how amazing it is. But I put up a picture of my son falling asleep in the back of the car um, and then I put something on really loud and he wakes up all shocked and that gets like 2 million hits. Um, and what, I, I struggle with what I'm supposed to take from that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a... I could talk about a few things to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, it's it's the music the music industry and how how you're supposed to or how you can be successful in it. Yeah. Is yeah. It's a it's very different from when I first got into music. It's very different now. And I guess it must be. Well, what you hear is that everybody makes money by gigging now, and selling merch. That must for you right now. That must be a kind of a weird situation mm, knowing yeah. that you can't gig as much so <laughs> yeah. oh my god it's a, bit, <laughs> Shit, it's a really difficult bit <laughs> yeah I mean not only do I love gigging I get a real kick out of it it took me a long time to get here when I first started performing when I was 18 I used to stand with my hands in my back pockets with my eyes closed and my head back like I just try not to be there and just deliver the vocal yeah. To, well, I pushed through all of that because I got in. You know, I was signed to a major label. Was doing pop dance music. I had to move around. So yeah. There was a lot of dancing in the mirror that I had to do on my own right. to get over it and get used to a four to the floor beat. You know. Yeah. Now I'm at the other end, and I like eyeball people. I love to sing to people, especially if you're looking at me while I'm singing. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, people get really 
shy and they look away but the people that actually want to give you their attention I love giving them everything I have yeah. in that moment and it's a lot of fun to be had looking around your band and seeing all the, the, the smiles on people's faces having a bit of a laugh with them while you're singing and playing yeah, yeah it sucks that basically I'm at a phase in my life where you know it's my specialism I know that I've been told I feel good about what I do I'm, I'm fairly good at it but I just cannot I can't do that as much yeah and also recognising it was the other way around when I was growing up you know people used to make a lot of money out of records and they, were, yeah, they yeah, would yeah. go out and gig purely to promote the record yeah, because yeah. that's where Sell their money records, was yeah. yeah yeah not get paid so much for the gigs but definitely get paid lots of money for their records so yeah. it's a complete flip to how it is now yeah we're living crazy times don't we I went to see this um, duo the other night called Ferris and Sylvester Right. And they finished on stage at the Green Door store. Mm-hmm. And then he was chatting to some people. So there's only him, her and a drummer. But like the drummer was like, just, he was there to play the drums. He wasn't part, of the, <laughs> he wasn't the duo. <laughs> oh, he wasn't like the headline of the you. two of them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> okay. He was a lovely guy and a brilliant drummer. But you know, there's very much him and her, Ferris and Sylvester, <laughs> that's who they are. Okay, I'm glad we got a clear. And they, they were brilliant. And they, you know, they sort of do their thing on stage. And then, so they come off stage and he's straight away just talking with people in the crowd, mm. which is great. And then she runs straight off to get behind the merch table yeah, to talk to people and to sell as much merch as possible. Yeah. And I've, it's, I mean, I've not seen that really at a gig. I don't, I don't go to a lot of gigs again due to be having young kids. kids so yeah, yeah. that sort of thing often sort of goes out the window, but seeing how real it is for them to kind of make the most of every situation mm. you can't just like come off stage and mm. be like you know and decompress and do all that stuff you've got to then go straight into another mode of i wonder how for how many bands that do have that approach where it's very real and you're there let's have a chat let me sell you my record yeah personally i'll fumble about for your changes and sign it to how many bands there are like that to all the bands that still really heavily play the mystique yeah. Because there are still. I mean, it must be working for both parties. Yeah. I'm sure that both types of a- a approach and attitude are, are making money. Yeah. But I just wonder how, what the balance is like, how many of each there are when you look across how everyone's doing it. I mean, certainly with the Viper Tones over in Holland. You're not running off stage and. I am. Sell- are you? I'm running off stage and I'm selling the merch. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Actually, I haven't done any gigs in the UK for a long time where I've had merch to sell because right. put it this way my band are all Dutch they all live in Holland you know we're at our biggest we're like a 10 piece band at our smallest we're five six piece band um, but we're all over there Yeah, it's just me that has to fly uh, and we all have the merch yeah. for that band uh, the other bands that I'm with that I'm featured as an artist there's a lot actually a lot of producers which yeah. are not out gigging yeah, Flevins yeah. he he should have some merch at the forthcoming gigs I think he's got some right. the Brownie Heavies gig this weekend uh, but yeah that's definitely still my approach and that's because I, I am a real person there's, there's no mystique about me I mean you ask me a question I'll give you an answer and that's just yeah. it I'm done with all the bullshit I never really played it anyway I can't be bothered <laughs> I talk too much but I guess it must be nice me- you know actually getting to meet the people that are your fan like that are into what you do. Yeah. That's, that's like another, you get people applauding and singing along or whatever, but then you actually get to talk to them after. It's another kind of affirmation, isn't it, I guess. So it can't be yeah, a bad thing. Never underestimate what that individual has put themselves through to either pay for your record or just get over the hump of coming up and approaching you. Yeah. Because I understand, like, you look at someone on stage uh, and then you build yourself up to approaching them. No matter how real or down to earth they are. Yeah. And they don't know that until they come up to you. So I'm always very grateful for anyone who wishes to say they enjoyed it or they want something or to ask, just to ask me a question, have a conversation. Because I think already they've managed to jump over a bit of a, yeah. a hurdle. Yeah. And I absolutely have respect for the fact that they're... They've actually made up. it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like... Actually made it off <laughs> the couch. <laughs> No, I've paid for a babysitter or something, yeah. you know, and they've come out. They pay for a babysitter, they pay for their drinks so they can stay t- long enough for the gig, then yeah. they've paid for my CD or my album, you know, yeah, on, yeah. On, on vinyl. And yeah, it's uh, I'm very grateful for it for as long as I can keep doing it and people want to hear it and see it. So. And 
to sort of wrap things up, if you met someone who wanted to follow a similar path to you or wanted to sort of get into the music industry as a singer or as part of a band, what what advice have you got? My advice is you need to work hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's been a misconception for several years that it's a quick, easy buck in music and that's absolute bullshit. Get rid of an ego if you've got one. It never helps. Right. At all. And, you know, understand what you're doing. Be good at what you're doing, but understand the people that you're working with because if there's one thing that I really know about musicians, that everybody's so different. Yeah. And if you can't get your head around that, you're out. And everybody needs a little bit of leeway. Yeah. You need to understand people. And it's a very mixed bunch of music. And there's a lot of fun to be had, but you don't be too precious. Ooh. Don't be too precious about stuff. Just work hard. Be, be as good as you can be and be honest about stuff. Is there, is there, like, how do you, how do you know that you're, I don't think it's the phrase I want to use, but how do you know you're good enough? How do you know what you're doing stands up? Do you regularly kind of check yourself against other things? Or me or, personally? Or just as Yeah, or, or one. Do you, you know, obviously you've, you learnt your skills you know, from your musical family, listening to certain things, so you know what's good and what isn't. How do you, do you still continue to be, you know, like how does this stand up against other things? Like, do you check your work now? I do, and I think <clears throat> everyone's capable of writing a shit track and writing a good track. And without a doubt, in my catalogue of releases, of which there are, you know, a couple of hundred almost, I've written some shit tracks, it's gonna happen. Yeah. I think I have a certain amount of resignation. You know, there's no point in me comparing myself to people constantly. What's that what's that saying about um it was used in that is it the Defiant Ones, that documentary? What the uh, Dr. Dre And the other guy? Jimmy Yavine. Yeah, so he he came up with an interesting analogy and he said, you know, why do you think they give racing horses the the blinkers, didn't he? Yeah. So because you know if they didn't have them, they'd be looking from side to side and they'd fall over. And I think that's a really important thing to remember, which is, especially when you're creating anything, if you keep looking around and comparing yourself the whole time, it can make your task that much harder. Yeah. Without a doubt, I'm not the best singer around or the best top line writer around. Um, I don't expect myself to be. Um, but I don't constantly compare myself either. What I think is really important for anyone that's doing something creative, whether it's art, theatre, whatever, is to find something that is yours. Yeah. And I think I'm fortunate enough to have a fairly distinctive voice. Um, and I only know that because a lot of people tell me that. But yeah. I also listen to a lot of singing, singers and I can hear different voices throughout like, yeah. hundreds of different voices and how different they are. So I, I know I can pick mine out. Obviously, I know mine very well. But I think that's, that's what I've been told and I believe people that tell me that. And you can find a confidence in knowing that your voice hmm. suits not maybe everything but it suits a certain thing and if people want that then you're yeah and you I can love certainly deliver anything. it yeah you know and that that's something i do want to mention whilst we're doing this which is that in 2021 i plan to put out new music every month right and i'm going to be self-releasing and i'm 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 not doing this off you know, it's only off my own steam it's for no one else it's not going through a label and it's not at the moment with any publishing deal tied up or anything yeah and my 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 point is you know, the thread is me. I'm already a multi-genre artist. I've yeah. been releasing across, you know, across lots of different art, um, genres for 20 years. And I want to continue to do that and I want the stigma to come down about that because people, when you're an artist, they try to put you in a box and say, you're a soul funk artist. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm yeah. not actually. I'm a writer and I write across all genres and I'm a good singer, so I deliver in all the genres. Yeah. I don't mind if it doesn't work, but I'll still have a pop. Um, and that's where I find myself at today, really, which is... I'm confident in what I can do. I'm not saying I'm the best. And I'm not saying you've got to dig it. And in fact, if you don't dig what I do on this hand, then I do this as well. Maybe yeah. you're going to like that. Yeah, yeah. And when I ask people what music they're into, and they say, well, all sorts, really. I, you know, I've often thought, well, you know, me too. Give me some freedom. And so I'm at that point, really, where I'm trying to claim that back and say, well, if you're into everything, and as a writer I am too, take whatever you like from me. I'm doing all these things. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that message will stand up. Um, 
I think that's a powerful message because I think it's quite easy to pigeonhole yourself and everything around you. People like to put things in boxes, don't they? And the industry do especially. Do they? Well, because they don't see that you can... How can you make a direct connection with your audience if you're not sure who your audience are? Yeah. That's the question. But do you think that's changing more and more as well with the fact that you don't get the tribes as much as you used to. You used to get like the skaters, the mm. goths, the indie kids yeah. and all that sort of thing. Whereas now on any given day, you can kind of be any one of those. Yeah. And it can be different tomorrow because you don't need to tailor your music collection towards one thing anymore because that's, I can buy one tape mm. a month. So you, you buy the even, thing that you're into yeah. and the group you want to identify with. Now you can just have anything. That's the key phrase, isn't it? Identifying. And that you see that across all sorts of areas of life right now. Yeah. Obviously, the whole gender um, debate and how people identify themselves. I think that is that is also what we're talking about. Is people are defining who they are uh, in in different ways these days. Yeah. And it's just not. I can't sit here and say I'm Laura Vane. I sing soul music. I can't sit here and say I'm Laura Vane. I write dance songs. I mean, it doesn't do it. It doesn't do me justice. It doesn't tell the story. It doesn't do anything, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, I'm not one-dimensional. So, yeah, moving forward, I've got big plans for 2021. So what sort of form is that going to take? Is that going to be like a track a month or just yeah, or just literally or whatever you come up with? And Well, I'm already working on it. I'm applying for some funding because I recognise that it's going to take a little bit. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some money to try and... Actually, there's no point in releasing it if it's not going to be seen or heard. So yeah. that's that's the side that I need help for. And like we were talking about earlier, that's where my money will go because that's not my strength. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it should take the form of um, one to two tracks every single month. Hopefully I'm going to schedule the release date to be the same day every month. Yeah. With a different bit of artwork um, across all platforms. Bang, bang, bang for 12 months. Um, is there going to be any live dates in there? Don't know. I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old right now. I can't even think about what I'm going to be doing in terms of gigs yeah. in uh, 2021. I'd like to say yes. It'd be really nice to... Some it... daytime ones by then, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like With some thumb Finishing pianos. at half two, yeah, just in time nice. to get back for the school run. We, why don't we do that? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, my friend Dan, he does them um, Top Rock and Beats. Yeah. And Dad of Soul. I mean, he's doing daytime raves with parents and kids and stuff. I mean, I totally get it. Uh... But no, that's at the moment it's a release schedule. Yeah. And it's all about multi-genre artists. Uh, and also about working on my own terms. Yeah. That's a really important thing uh, that I'm trying to tell people, which is, you know, when you've got kids, you just cannot keep trying to put, you know, that square peg in a round hole. You can't yeah. keep trying to hit the markers for main like mainstream artists do or people that are, you know without kids in the industry that can just keep applying, applying, applying it to all these deadlines. It's not, yeah. I think, if you are one of those people out there that's a parent that is able to apply yourself like that, that's wicked. And I, my hat goes off to you. I don't know how you're doing it. Yeah. I know how I feel about myself and, and the pressure. So when I release every month, I'm hoping to have all of my ducks in a row, basically by autumn next year. Yeah, so that you've got it all lined up. It's literally to... like a pressing a button. Yeah. Every month. Yeah. Or just a couple of hours of protocol. Yeah. Once a month. Um, uh, and just to make my life easy. But I mean, I, I'm, what I want by the end of 2021 is for someone to see that I'm prolifically re releasing brand new music in all different genres. Yeah. As a statement, you know. Yeah. So. I think that's a big statement as well. And I wish you all the luck with that. Thank because you. Because I know what that feels like trying to line up some things in a row to get some sort of. And we've lined this Regular up release schedule. so that you we can get out <laughs> before the school run. Time run. Yeah, almost time to go. Well, look, thank you for coming over. I thank really you. appreciate it. I hope I haven't talked too much. Not at all. Thank you. So there we are, the lovely Laura Vane. An absolute pleasure to spend some time with her. I hope that's not the last time we get to hang out. So a bit of housekeeping, obviously it would be amazing if you could like and subscribe, post a review on iTunes, do all that sort of stuff. It's all very, very welcome. It helps me when I approach people to do these interviews. If they can see some nice comments or, you know, 
maybe more so than listener numbers just nice comments that people who maybe get something out of this or have been inspired to do something themselves I guess that would motivate most people to get involved so if you would be so kind I would very much appreciate it Uh, next time, next week, we've got a very enjoyable chat with a guy called Lee Bright who runs BBE Music, uh, a very distinguished label, kind of based between London and Hastings. And uh, he goes back a long way. He's friends with my man Jean-Claude, who was one of the subjects in Series 1, which you can find on iTunes right now. If you haven't binge-listened, then go back and see those and check those out so yeah lee bright is next time on the current state of music and uh yeah i hope you have enjoyed this one and we'll see you next time okay take care peace